Welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser, and today's conversation is a little off the beaten path from what we're used to. Today, we're joined by Dr. Radford Davis for a conversation about the top five Bartonella species of human significance. So, Dr. Davis, I'd like to welcome you. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Oh, I'm excited to have this conversation. Like I said, a little non-traditional from from what we maybe think about um, when we start talking on the human side. But before that, just like to know a little bit about your background. So tell me, I know you're at Iowa State now, but what's your alma mater? I uh, got my vet degree from Colorado State. Oh, outstanding. And are you from Colorado? Is that where you grew up? Uh, no, Utah. Utah. Okay. Yeah. A beautiful country yeah. out there. And are you one of the veterinarians who always knew you wanted to be a vet, or was this a later-in-life discovery for you? A little bit later. I took a gap year out of high school and started thinking about what I wanted to do. Uh, I was thinking about medical school or veterinary school and chose veterinary school, but it it took me a year to decide, or <laughs> rather 18, 19 years to decide, I suppose. You know, and, and I think that's actually um, sort of speaks to the path maybe you, you took as well, because you also have a background in public health. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I can just give you my background. So I went to Colorado State and uh, married one of my classmates uh, second year right after our finals. We got married sophomore year. And then um, she was from Arizona and I was from Utah and Arizona. She was on an out-of-state contract with Arizona. So we went back to um, to Tucson to practice. And I, uh, I worked e, uh, in emergency medicine for seven years, small animal emergency medicine in Tucson. And after a couple of years, I decided that's not what I wanted to do uh, with with my life. So I started searching around for opportunities. I'd always had an interest in wildlife and infectious diseases. So I uh, I went to the University of Arizona and uh, I started a PhD uh, working on research in uh, in plague. And after a couple of years in the the PhD program, I had a friend who was also doing a PhD was also doing a master's of public health at the medical school there. And the more I learned about his experience in the master's of public health, the less inclined I was to continue with the PhD simply because I didn't want to work in a laboratory. So I bailed out of the PhD and went over to the medical school and finished my MPH very quickly because I had a lot of coursework already done. And then started searching around for jobs, and I took a position at Iowa State. That's pretty fantastic. And it sounds like, you know, you followed what felt right to you. And so how is that working out? Are you enjoying where you're at and what you're doing at this point? Yeah, I've been here 21 years. And it's nice because being around the students, I'm always around people who are excited about what they do and always excited about where they're going. And they want they want the latest and best, so that keeps me on my toes. I always have to be current, uh, even current events. If I if I'm behind on current events, somebody <laughs> will call me out. You know, so um, it's yeah, it's it's very intellectually stimulating and it's fun. Well, and when we're talking about these particular areas, we are talking about change that does happen very quickly in, in current events that are, are ever evolving because we are seeing different species of parasites. We are seeing different, you know, resistance and different strains popping up. And to that point, your article um, that you had published in the July 2019 issue of Clinician's Brief, again, titled the Top 5 Bartonella Species of Human Significance, kind of stands out among the usual 
usual clinician's brief lineup that we see because, again, we're talking about humans here. And in general, we're usually discussing the effects and the consequences for pets when we think about disease. But, I mean, this is an important area that we, we probably need to discuss. How knowledgeable do you feel veterinary professionals are about the risks of Bartonella and even one step further on top of that, in general, zoonotic diseases? Um, I'll, I guess I'll take the last part of that question first about how knowledgeable they are about zoonotic diseases. I think I think veterinarians are pretty knowledgeable about zoonotic diseases. Not all zoonotic diseases, but I think about the the most common ones and then a few of the rare ones as well, like rabies. I think I think they're pretty well versed in a lot of zoonotic diseases, and in fact. As I always tell the students, that they are the vets are the experts when it comes to zoonotic diseases. Uh, really, the only other person that might come close would be an infectious disease physician. The vets are the ones that have the most knowledge and can educate the client the most and help the most in prevention of zoonotic diseases in the family or the, or the pet owner. Now, there are always certain diseases that are less common and people may not remember very much and need a little bit of a refresher course. And I think Bartonella is is one of those diseases. And I'm going to use the catchphrase Bartonellosis because Bartonellosis covers all Bartonella species, of which there are, you know, over three dozen now, and they're finding new ones every year. But I think a lot of people are familiar with the term cat scratch disease. And and some veterinarians, I'm sure, remember the cat scratch disease are, is connected to Bartonella hensilae. But beyond that, I think many of the other Bartonella species are a little bit less well-known to veterinarians and, and maybe uh, maybe hidden to, to them as well. And so when we're talking about like these hidden diseases and the, the communications between veterinarians and clients... I guess one thing that kind of, you know, stands out to me is is how do we have that conversation without instilling fear with our clients and keeping them educated, keeping veterinarians educated, but without kind of creating panic? Yeah, and, and this is something that I, I talk with students about a lot. I take students, for example, part of my public health course, I take them to a local animal shelter. And if we want to talk about a high-risk population, uh, we have stray animals, stray dogs and stray cats that could be carrying uh, internal parasites, external parasites, and, and bacteria, fungal disease, um, uh, organisms, and, and viruses. So these are high-risk animals that are being adopted out to the public. Um, as compared to, say, usually the, the typical pet owned by uh, a person or a family probably has a little bit more care and is going to come with probably fewer diseases because they're getting the, the appropriate veterinary attention. So one thing I like to point out to animal owners, to veterinarians, veterinary students, and, and vets know this, uh, but owners may not realize that there's no such thing as a sterile animal. Um, mm. we're, every animal is going to carry at least one zoonotic disease. And dogs and cats, if we're talking just about dogs and cats, they're going to carry multiple zoonotic diseases. And some of these are normal flora. They're part of the normal oral flora or gastrointestinal flora or even uh, skin flora that people can acquire. So we're not we're not going to ever have a risk-free animal as a pet. So I think just as veterinarians, I think it's important to sort of convey that, but in a 
not in an alarmist way, but just in a general way. And I think a, a really good time to do that is when you first make that relationship with the client and their, their animal, talking about what, what the client's needs are, what the pet's needs are, discussing issues that they may have. And when you detect or, or diagnose a, a zoonotic disease, having some discussion about that, how it's transmitted, how they can prevent it, and encouraging them to go to their physician if they have human questions uh, about that. So uh, I think there's a lot that, that the average veterinarian is doing and can continue to do to help make this zoonotic aspect of, of animals less alarming to the owner and just for the owner to realize, yes, this is part of the package deal of, of owning a pet, that it's gonna carry some risks. And I also like to stress with them that that risk is really low on average uh, of acquiring a zoonotic disease from a pet, it's a really low risk and can be made even lower by following some general common sense uh, prevention recommendations, such as keeping the nails trimmed, um, washing your hands after feeding the pet or contacting the pet, not letting the pet lick your wounds, you know, washing scratches or, or, or bites and, and seeking medical care when it's when it's necessary. And okay, to that point, so when we talk about Bartonella in general, you mentioned, you know, 17 species or subspecies known to cause disease in humans in your article. And mm -hmm. the, you, you specifically mentioned an estimated 500 hospitalizations and 12,000 outpatient cases each year in just the United States. And so those are, to me, those are pretty significant numbers. And I, I appreciate the normalization of the conversation and saying like, this is part of having a pet and in normal conditions, it's under control, wonderful points, you know, to kind of control it. But with doing that, how how are the majority of these cases in humans being contracted? I don't think anybody can really say because Bartonella is such a underdiagnosed, underrecognized disease or organism, really, in, in humans and probably in a lot of different species as well. I think the majority of cases in this study that I cited that, that came from CDC, these are being contracted through um, primarily cat contact, so cat uh, scratches or, or cat bites. But again, I think this is really just the tip of the iceberg, that there is a lot of unrecognized Bartonella infections that are occurring in people that that go undetected. That makes sense. So they're not always symptomatic cases and exposure can right, be present. Right, right, right. And, and a lot of cases in people uh, resolve, not all of them, but a lot of them resolve on their own. So people may not seek treatment. That's interesting. And, you know, I guess too, I wonder how readily is it being diagnosed on the human side? Are human physicians even looking for this? So are they maybe treating the symptoms and missing the actual diagnosis? Right. And, and that's a good point. Um, if I had to guess, I would say that there are many people that are seen by their physician that it's not picked up. They, the patient doesn't know enough to maybe question whether they should be tested for this. And the physician's not thinking of that. Maybe the physician's not asking about previous animal exposures or what the person's occupation is. So if you're a veterinarian and you're uh, experiencing maybe um, sore throat, headache, uh, fatigue, fever, something like that, you're not thinking maybe Bartonella and maybe your physician isn't either. So yeah, it, it's hard to say. Uh, there, I know uh, there are some experts out there that really think that this is a very under-recognized infection in humans.
It would be interesting, you know, if we were just always pulling blood to see from year to year what our exposures were coming up and running to these panels, because I think we would be really surprised. And to that point, you use very important wording in your article, or at least for me, I found it to be very important. You discuss Bartonella as an occupational hazard. And I love that because I don't know that we really think about zoonotic diseases always as occupational hazards in the forefront of our mind, right? You hear about clinics where entire hospitals are exposed by, to rabies by a kitten or a puppy because it's adorable and we pass it around and we and we don't respect the fact that this, this tiny little cute thing, you know, absolutely may have some kind of zoonotic disease. So your article had some great exposure statistics that I think are important to discuss. Would you mention some of those here? Sure. And and there have been a number of studies out there, so I'll just highlight the ones that I cited in the in the article. So one uh, serological survey of U.S. vets and uh, veterinary technicians found uh, DNA from at least one Bartonella species in 28% of, of those subjects. And of those, 56% were Bartonella hensilae, 26% were Bartonella vinsonii subspecies Burkhoffii and 22% were Bartonella cholerae. And then I think I cited another study of Spanish veterinarians, uh, 89 Spanish veterinarians that were done, uh, a study that was done, um, and 73% were positive for at least one Bartonella species. So I think it speaks to this fact that, yes, we're, we're being infected. And again, these are just two studies. But I think we could probably find a lot more positive people. And I think it also speaks, going back to our original or earlier conversation, that this is underrecognized, underdetected, and people are probably getting infected and either not developing clinical signs or resolving on their own and they're not seeking medical care and further diagnostics. Yeah, and I mean... I think I know a lot of guilty culprits in the veterinary industry of that, right? We work through these types of things. And if if you told me you had a headache and you were tired and had a sore throat, I mean, I just, I can think of a lot of reasons that that would be that would not pop up in my head necessarily with a zoonotic disease like, like Bartonella in the forefront of my mind. And you know, when we think about these zero positive tests in people that are asymptomatic, so to the point of the numbers that you just kind of stated, these guys were not necessarily experiencing symptoms. And we deal with that, I feel like, a lot in the veterinary clinic where we see positive tests for asymptomatic, you know, patients. I guess, is this happening on the human side? Um, and, and maybe it's not because they're they're not testing, but are we coming across, and when we do come across zero positive people and humans, um, are we? what do we do at that point if there are no symptoms, if there's just been exposure? I mean, would there be, say, uh, prophylactic antibiotics? Sure. Like, what is the protocol? Do we, yeah. is there follow-up testing? Um, is, do you prophylactically treat? Do we, do we just watch it? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, so uh, let me see if I understand. So you're talking about if, if I were, say, uh, scratched by a cat, uh, would I go to my physician and request antibiotics or just watch it? Is that kind of what so you're doing? So I'm wondering, I guess, if there are instances where we get seropositive tests, like those stated in the article where veterinarians and veterinary personnel are tested for this disease and they come up positive as some type of exposure. What what does the human side do at that point? Do they have a protocol that you know of? I don't know of any protocol. From, From all my investigation, what I 
have learned that is there's there's really a disconnect between being seropositive and being being infected. So just because an animal or a human is seropositive doesn't mean that they are actually infected. In fact, when we look at cats specifically, there is a significant disconnect because you can have a um, seronegative cat that is bacteremic or a uh, so uh, bacteremic positive, or you can have um, just the opposite. You can have um, a seropositive cat that's uh, negative for being uh, bacteremic, so it's not shedding. So seropositivity just means that our immune system has encountered that. We've mounted an, an antibody response. Doesn't mean that um, that we're currently infected. So for humans, I guess, and, and this this also applies to to pets that you're not going to follow a, this this pet or this this human you're not going to prescribe antibiotics to e either of them unless there's a clinical reason to do so just because they're seropositive so I have had I've had veterinarians contact me with clients and they've they've these clients have have presented a cat to the veterinarian and they said I have this immunocompromising condition and I've adopted this cat. Please test this cat for everything that I could get from it. And the veterinarian agreed. And that becomes a very difficult situation because if you the cat's going to be positive for something. You're going to have to spend a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of follow-up following through on all these tests. And then if any of them are positive, what then? Well, then you're going to be expected to clear the cat of that infection, which really is unnecessary. If this cat is healthy and not showing clinical signs, you really shouldn't be going down that route because any zoonotic disease that the cat has, the owner can really prevent to a very good extent uh, acquiring that zoonotic disease by doing all these prevention measures that I kind of talked about a little bit quickly earlier. And same with Bartonella, just because the cat's positive, and if it's a healthy cat, it's there's no recommendation to to follow that up with, with antibiotics. The only, the only time I would recommend prescribing antibiotics uh, for an animal that had a Bartonella positive titer would be if the animal is showing clinical signs, and maybe there's some other evidence. So maybe you've got a fourfold rise in titer, evidence of fourfold rise in titer. Or maybe you were able to also confirm that there's um, uh, PCR positive uh, along with that. Plum's Veterinary Drugs is the must-have veterinary drug resource. With Plum's Veterinary Drugs, your number one source for drug information can always be right at your fingertips, on your phone, your tablet, or your desktop, wherever you need it. To learn more and subscribe, visit PlumsVeterinaryDrugs.com. Well, you know, it sounds like you, you know, really have a, a, a wonderful lead for our listeners on how to have these conversations with clients when they're coming up positive and when these concerns are out there, because we, we don't want to panic and we don't want people to want to euthanize their pet or get rid of them. And it sounds like it's, it's a fairly manageable space to be in between transmission and feeling comfortable with transmission between client and pet or individual and cats, right? We feel comfortable in that space. 
What about from cat to cat? Can you speak a little bit about the concerns of transmission between cats? Sure. So we know that if we just look at Bartonella hensley, so Bartonella hensley is by far the most common Bartonella species that we're finding in humans and uh, in cats as well. And I, I want to also point out that Bartonella hensley causes very little disease in cats. And the jury is still out as to whether when you find that cat that is uh, seropositive and showing some clinical signs, the jury's still out whether those two are connected, whether it's actually Bartonella hensley causing the infection or causing the clinical signs of the cat. But cat to cat, so we know Bartonella hensley is transmitted by fleas, but now we're also picking up that there's researchers are finding that there are other um, arthropods, other vectors that potentially can be transmitting this as well. So in a household where you have a cat with Bartonella hensley and you have other cats and you're concerned about transmission from one cat to another, it's transmitted by fleas, not flea bites, by, but by flea feces. So cats are uh, obtaining this by fleas in the home or fleas on the cat. So to prevent transmission from one cat to the other, you need to knock down the fleas. You need to get rid of the fleas. Once you do that, then the transmission goes away. And so part of that part of that package deal is using flea control, but also keeping the cats indoors so they're not going outside and, and getting more fleas and bringing them back in. So that's really an easy way to do that. And there's some evidence now and some thinking that in humans, yeah, cat scratches uh, are a source for Bartonella hensley infection, cat bites. Dog scratches have been a source as well, but now there's some thinking that maybe uh, direct flea to human is also a source. So flea feces on our skin, if you have an environment or pets with lots of fleas and you're getting these fleas on you and you're scratching yourself and that's inoculating the flea feces into your into your skin and you're acquiring Bartonella that way. I'm picturing every shelter dog and, you know, spay neuter campaign I've, I've ever done and the amount of flea feces I've been in contact with and I feel my yeah. zero positive levels rising just thinking about right. it. Right, and that, that kind of goes back to the occupational exposure is that as veterinarians, we're not only exposed through bites and scratches, but also being around ticks. So ticks have, have been found to be infected with Bartonella uh, hensley as well, um, but also these fleas. So we've we've got risks at all ends coming at us. And then we're, we're also working with needles and maybe we've drawn blood on a cat or a dog or we've done a necropsy and we've gotten some blood exposure. So all of those are risk factors as well. Okay, so those mentions right there bring me to my keep it brief segment that I had in mind for you. Now, not a lot of pressure here because we rarely do keep it brief, but when you're talking about all of those everyday, ha I mean, it sounds like this is really a hazard in so many aspects of our occupational daily life for managers, for the people who are in charge of keeping everyone around them safe. Like, you know, I can't come around and wash my employees' hands. How can we better educate our staff on the types of occupational hazards and zoonotic diseases like this and ensure that they're taking the correct precautions and keeping themselves safe? Yeah, that's a good point. I think every veterinary clinic needs to have protocols regarding biosafety protocols, uh, biohazard protocols, and zoonotic prevention. So they, I think vet clinics need to, to look at zoonotic risks and ask themselves, how are we addressing this? Is there a do we have a formal training program? Do, when we hire new people, are we putting them through training? Veterinarians coming out of veterinary school 
most of these graduates are getting very good zoonotic education. But what about the technicians that are being hired? Did they get good zoonotic disease education? What about if the clinic has a kennel attached to it and you're hiring, let's say, high school kids to help clean out the kennels uh, after school or before school? Are they getting, getting educated about zoonotic diseases? So everybody who works with animals in the clinic setting should be educated on the zoonotic risks and how to prevent them. So that could be Bartonella or that could be Leptospirosis. Um, it could be MRSA. It could be anything. And so there are lots of different ways to approach this. And the National Association of State Public Health Veterinarians has a really good document put out to, um, it's, uh, I can't remember the exact title, but it's Preventing Zoonotic Diseases in Veterinary uh, Personnel. And in this document, they lay out basic guidelines. So if you're doing a dental, for example, what kind of uh, PEP, what kind of personal protective equipment, uh, PPE should you be wearing? Uh, should your staff be vaccinated against influenza, rabies, those kinds of things. So, and they also have a model document that a, a vet clinic can take that model document and apply to their clinic. So there are lots of ways in which you can instill zoonotic education through the, this new hire training, uh, continuing uh, training within the clinic, say at staff meetings, sending your staff to uh, CE, um, those kinds of things. One of the things I also advocate is if you've got handouts on leptospirosis or Bartonella or anything else that you're you're giving to your clients about the disease in their pets, that we're talking about zoonotic diseases, that you should also be familiar with what's in that document. You should have that same knowledge in, in you and in your staff. They should all have read that document and be familiar with what's in it and be just as educated in that in that document as what they're giving it, uh, to their, their client. And I think that's a good way to understand um, the disease as well. That's right. We have to be as passionate about protecting disease in ourselves as we are in our patients. And I don't know that we always do that. And I appreciate your time today in really helping to bring that conversation to the forefront and help us remember how important it is to keep ourselves protected, how likely we are to be exposed and to be thinking about these types of diseases when we're maybe under the weather and how likely it is we, we may be working around them. I thank you so much for your time today. Are there any additional resources or places you want to send individuals who have listened to this podcast today for more information or maybe to contact you? Where can they reach out? Well, I think the CDC is always a good start. If you're looking for more information on just the basics of any zoonotic disease, just go to the cdc.gov website and uh, search for that disease. So they have some good information about Bartonella as well. If they go to the National Association of State Public Health Vets, nasphv.org, um, they can find the document that I talked about. And it's this um, document, again, I can't remember the title. Uh, it's about preventing zoonotic diseases in veterinary personnel. That would be a good document. There's also information in there about disinfection and, and personal protective equipment. That's outstanding. And don't worry, we'll put those links in the show notes so you can check them out on our website for more information. Thank you again, Dr. Davies, so much for being with us today. Um, we really appreciate your time and, and this expertise and honestly for helping and bringing this really important topic to the forefront. Thank you again so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks again to today's guests for joining us, and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. 
You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant, Michelle Moncrez.